Y'all ready to get washed with the Word? Stay with me for just one moment. Let's, let's lift up our hearts to the Lord and ask Him to encounter us and to change us. If you want to, if you will, just lift your hands to the Lord. Father, we come to you recognizing our need for you and for your word. We're hungry. We're like newborn children who hunger and thirst and long for the pure milk of your word to fill us, to wash us, and to change us. Father, I pray that this day you would impart something living inside of us, that you would transform us and plant seeds of eternity in our hearts and that you would shift our mindsets and help us in our journey to walk more steady, more stable, more confident in you. And I thank you that you are the only one that can do it. And so our eyes are upon you and we say, yes, Holy Spirit, come as the teacher of the church and teach us the ways of God. And teach us the ways of our Savior in deeper ways this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We're going to start in Acts chapter 14. So I don't need to have a show of hands. I could do it, but I know just because I'm in contact with a lot of people in the body here, being on the leadership team, that there's a lot of people that are going through hard times. It's real. There's seasons like that. But as a body, we've been going through a season where a lot of people are dealing with really, really difficult things. And so my heart this morning and what I believe the Lord wants to impart to us is encouragement and strengthening and help us to navigate the really hard times in life to walk through them stably and with confidence in Him and to encourage one another in our journey. So this month, actually, it just washed over me, Chris, when you were speaking out that rap. Chris has been, he teases me all the time like he and I are going to do a rap together. And, and I said, that'll be after the rapture. <clears throat> um, But you were talking about your testimony there. And so this month of May for me in this year is the 45-year anniversary from the time where Jesus came into my life, uninvited, radically swept me into the kingdom. Um, and so I've been walking with him for a long time. But the the sense of the emotion and the affection that stirs in me when I hear your testimony is real, and it's still just like it was. I picture myself back then as a 15-year-old boy and just all of the things and all the confusion and all the mess and the tangled junk that I was in and how Jesus came in just like Zacchaeus. He didn't wait for me to invite him. He came to me and said, I'm coming to your house today. You are? Oh, okay. And he swept in and swept me into his kingdom just in a sovereign way, and I will forever praise him and thank him for that. But in my time of walking with the Lord, 
over these years, I have learned some things about His love. His love is stronger than I thought at first. His love is more fierce than I thought at first, where He will fight for me. His love is more jealous, where He's not willing to share me with the world. All of those things surprised me about His love. And another thing that I've learned just in my journey is that the Father's love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. His passion for me, and I've felt this over and over again. I've felt this in times where He's corrected me. And He's corrected me hard sometimes because I've been a knucklehead, to be honest with you. But He has been faithful in His correction of me, drawn me to Himself. His love is reliable, and it is faithful, and it is fierce, and it is passionate. And He is not a pampering father, not a doting father. He doesn't run whenever I fall down and scrape my knee and go, oh, you poor thing, are you okay? He's like, come on, you can get up. You're going to be okay. You can, you, you're going to be okay. I'm going to help you. It's a perfecting love. And the passion of the Father's heart for me and for you is that we're perfected. His destiny for us is Romans 8.29. He has predestined us that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. And so, if you haven't known this yet, here's revelation for you. That's not always going to be comfortable. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. There's going to be times where you cry. There's going to be times where you groan. Romans chapter 8 tells us there's a groaning, right? All creation is groaning because of sin. The whole Son and we ourselves groaning because He's wanting us to be conformed to the image of the Son. And we ourselves are groaning, longing for the full redemption of the children of God that's going to happen when Jesus comes back the second time. And every vestige of sin will be put down and put away. And we'll be completely free. And you'll see Chris and me doing rap in heaven. That'll have to be recorded, Lord, if that happens. God is a perfecter. And so my message this morning, I put a title on it. It's Perfected Through Pressure. Acts 14. Let's start reading here. I want us to be washed in the Word of God this morning and, and to maybe gain some insight into how to navigate our hard times. Because here's the reality that's shown in Scripture over and over again. The hard things that we walk through, regardless of what the source is, there's something there that the Lord wants to impart eternal, powerful reality in our lives if we will seize it. What we try to do is to avoid hardship at all costs, to run from it, and very often when we do that, we forfeit the treasure that God was wanting to impart into our lives through that process. That's not an amen shouter, is it? Like, we're not, we don't want to hear that, but this is real. This is God's purpose. This is the Father's plan that He is perfecting us through the pressures of life. That's real. Acts 14, read with me verses 19 through 22. Powerful passage. Verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul 
and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. I don't know if you heard what we just read there. Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They've gone through these towns in in the province of Galatia. And there's Jews that are literally following them. They literally came a hundred miles because they heard Paul was going to be there. Not because they wanted revival, but because they wanted to kill him for preaching Christ. And so they came a hundred miles. They stirred up the crowd there to stone them. Even after this mighty miracle had happened, you can read the previous part of the chapter, uh, and they began to worship them as gods. Then they stirred them up, and here they are. They stoned them. What must that be like? Have you ever thought what it would be like to be stoned, where you've got people around you with stones of all different sizes, and they're pummeling you, throwing rocks at you until you die? What must that be like? I don't know. I can't imagine it. But I don't think sore is a good representation of what you would feel. He was obviously unconscious. They thought he was dead. We're going to read here in just a second. The disciples came and gathered around him. I don't think he really did die because Luke is a very accurate historian, and he would have said he died, and and the Lord rose him from the dead. So why does that matter? Because he was just stoned and left for dead. I don't think the Lord completely just totally restored him. But look, they stood around him. Verse 20, the disciples stood around him. He got up and entered the city, and the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. So they started backtracking. You believe that? He's stoned and left for dead. They drag his body out of the city. The disciples get around him. You know they're praying. Good chance they're praying in tongues. They're they're, they're praying. And Paul gets up. He goes, we've got another engagement to preach the gospel. What are we waiting for? The next day, they leave to go on the next crusade. What must he have looked like? Can you imagine yourself getting pummeled all over your body with rocks by people that were very angry with you, what you must look like and what you must feel like? And Paul's like, we have something to do. We're all about the gospel. The one who called me from heaven, knocked me off my horse, told me that I'm going to bear witness. So here we go. Barnabas, get the horses. We're going to Derby to preach the gospel. Then they went there, preached the gospel, made multitudes of disciples. And then Paul's like, you know what? We need to go around to all these other churches that we just preached to in the last month or two and established a work there. And we need to go back there and strengthen them. So notice what it says in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many, say many, through many tribulations, say tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, say must. Okay, let's think about those three words for just a minute. If you were thinking about taking a message to new converts who were just established in the gospel, churches are just started now, what would your message be when you went back to them to preach the gospel? What was the first thing that you would tell them? What would you try to get them established in? Well, what Paul 
And Barnabas established them in was, look, there's going to be many tribulations that you must go through to enter the kingdom of God. Many tribulations that you must go through. Many, not a few. James and Peter both, both used the word various when you encounter various trials, right? That means there's lots of different kinds of trials. And they're from various sources. What are the sources of our trials? Well, there's lots of them. There could be lots of different sources. How about our own stupidity sometimes? Can anybody testify with me? That our own stupidity has got us into a mess a lot of times, that it's put a lot of pressure on us and other people. Our bad choices, um, our own immaturity, that can be a cause. Persecution for the gospel, we just saw that in this chapter. That could be a reason why there's tribulation. Living in a sin-cursed world, that could be a reason why there's tribulation, right? I remember one Friday, uh, how many years ago was it? Maybe 10 years ago. One Friday, the AC unit in my house went out. My son got in a car accident and totaled the car, and I got a notification from the IRS that somebody had stolen my Social Security number and stolen a $10,000 tax return in one hour. In one hour. Well, that was the devil. Maybe. It's living in a fallen world. Hardship comes because of that, okay? So the good news is, after a year of going after the IRS, I got my money back, and insurance paid for the car, and I paid for a new AC. Um, so everything turned out well, but look, the pressures of life come from it. So we live in a sin-cursed world. What are the other reasons why pressure comes in our lives? We have an enemy who hates us. We have an enemy who hates everything about Jesus and his people and the church of God, and he attacks in every way he can. That's real. I want to tell you that I have a grief in my heart, and we've been praying into it earnestly and seriously, like, it's too much in our body right now, all the things that are happening. Like, it's too much. I know the enemy is trying to oppose what the Lord is doing here, but like, I just feel like in my heart, like, this is too much. This is not, we're not going to continue like this. God is going to break in and do powerful things. I know he's been doing beautiful things anyway, but like, I don't know if you're like me, but like, I get mad about it. This, this is the enemy that is doing a lot of things, and we need to put him in his rightful place, which is far beneath Jesus' feet, right? He's not like this. You know, he's far beneath Jesus' feet. And what's another reason for hardships in our life and tribulation? It's God's design. There are strategic sufferings that God sends into our lives as believers because He's shaping us into the image of His Son. That's absolutely true. I, I, I've never yet got an amen saying that statement, but it's absolutely true in Scripture. I will show it to you over and over again. It's absolutely true. So what should we do with that? We don't want to believe that that's true. Why should we believe that? Here's the reason why. Because God wants us to partner with Him in the midst of the hardship and recognize that the things that we are gaining are worth 10 million times more than the things that we have given up or the things that we are suffering. Paul said in Romans 8, right, I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not even worthy to be compared 
with the eternal weight of glory that is going to be revealed in us. So they're not even on the same scale. Like, I know, you go, you don't know what I've got. I, I do get it. I get some of that, right? I've experienced a lot of things. I, I can't compare or know that I can feel exactly what you're feeling. I can't. I can't. But Jesus does. Let's get washed with the Word. And I want to look. That word must is the same word that Jesus used repeatedly in the Gospels when He said, I must go to Jerusalem and be turned over to the high priests and to the scribes to be abused and to be beaten and to be mocked and to be vilified and to be crucified. I must. I must. The same word exactly. It's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus is telling Ananias, go and lay your hands on Paul. And Ananias said, Lord, this is the guy who's trying to kill your people. What are you sending me into? And the Lord said, he's a chosen vessel of mine, for I will show him how much he must Suffer for my name's sake because he's going to bear my name before kings. That's the same must. That must is a divine must that there's a pathway that God is going to lead us on that there's going to be hardship in it. That's real. That's biblical. And we'll see that over and over again. Then I want to look at the word tribulation. The word tribulation is an interesting word. The idea behind the word is pressure, squeezing, sometimes crushing, but you feel the pressure just closing in on you and squeezing you. That's tribulation. Anybody ever feel that? Anybody ever feel like citrus fruit? Like you get squeezed and then what's inside of you begins to come out? And that's part of the revelation that the Father wants to bring to us in our hardship. If we'll partner with Him, one of the great things that happens is that He shows us what's inside of us so that we can get rid of the junk. It's beautiful. Tribulation. Jesus, I'm going to read you John 16, 21, because the same word is used there just to give you a feel for it and how Jesus used it. He says, whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. Because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish. That word, the anguish, is the same word tribulation that's here. The anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. So what is the anguish in childbirth? All you moms know, your dads probably don't. I have been at all seven of my children's births and have cut the cord on all of them. And so I've seen a little bit of laboring. Um, and, and I've heard my wife struggle through that whole process, and it was very unnerving um, sometimes for me. And I, 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 can not, I didn't feel the pain, but I heard it. And, and I, um, it, it, it kind of shook me a little bit inside, and especially one I remember where she's hanging on me, and we're walking in the, in the house there where uh, the midwife is, and we're having the baby, and she's hanging on, and she's just groaning in labor. It's in transition, getting ready uh, to get ready to be able to push the baby out, and she's, she's like, honey, I don't think I can do it. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I, I know I can't. 
What, what are we going to do? <laughs> you got to push that baby out. <laughs> they, they, there's anguish. And with our first child, it was really exciting. And when it was close to time to deliver Jace, our first son, he, you know, there was a morning where Diane was kind of having some pre-labor false labor kinds of things, and, and she was super excited, and so we called up the midwife and uh, got her on the phone, and I'm talking to her. I'm saying, I, th- I think we're in labor. I think we're going to have this baby, and of course, I'm the typical nervous, you know, dad, and, and, and she goes, is, is that her in the background? Because she was in the background. She goes, you know, that kind of stuff, and, and she goes, no, you're not having the baby, <laughs> and here's the revelation. As long, here's what she said. As long as it's still fun, you're not in labor. As long as it's still fun, you're not in labor. Because there's an anguish to pushing out a baby. This is true in our lives. God says, I know that this is hard for you. And my heart goes out to you, and I'm not trying to punish you. The Father's heart is good for us. It's good. If He didn't spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? His heart toward us is good, but His desire for us to be perfected is greater than His desire for our constant comfort and pampering. Come on, I'm telling you the truth. Here's the thing. When we get our mindset shift, we will operate through hardship a lot better. Instead of crying, feeling sorry, mourning, and trying to get people to feel sorry for us, and calling everybody we know, and saying, you know, we're looking for sympathy, we're fishing. I I get that. That's okay. We want to be sympathetic and tenderhearted to each other. Absolutely. But instead of doing that first, our first response will turn to God. There's an opportunity here to reap eternity. What is it? How can I partner with what you are wanting to do inside of me? Because this is the first message that Paul and Barnabas went back to the churches they had just started and told them. You guys got to get this because this is going to start right now. Right now it's going to start. You're going to go through seasons where it's going to be hard. It's going to be pressure. And God's going to want to do something inside of you and establish you. Here's another scripture that's on nobody's refrigerator in the world. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, God himself will establish you, confirm you, and strengthen you after you've suffered for a little while. God, could you cut those first few words out of that verse, please? He's like, no, because that's part of the process. You're giving birth to life. There's a baby that's coming out. It's really okay. It's worth it. You know what the miracle is? That women have babies, and then they want to go back and do it again. Baby, and they go, that's a miracle. You know why? Because they see that little baby, and they go, I can't. They're so precious, so amazing. Let's, let's have some more. So for us, we had seven. 
And now we're in the grandkid phase. And we're believing for at least 25 grandchildren. And I think we'll get more than that. We have 11. We only have three kids married, so we're moving in the right direction. <laughs> Hallelujah. All right, so tribulation must. Why does God do this? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. These, these verses are not new to most of you. And I'm just reiterating what you already know and helping to try to put this in perspective that the Lord is doing something powerful even through our times of hardship. Even if the enemy comes in and is doing something, God wants to train us how to stomp the enemy. He wants to train us how to partner with the authority of Jesus who has risen far above all principalities and power and might and dominion in every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, and has given him as head to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you know what all of that rant meant? It said Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, and God the Father said he's the head of everything, and I give him to the church in all of his authority for the church to be able to operate and to bring the kingdom and to put the devil in his rightful place because the devil's already been vanquished. That means you and me hold a share. We're shareholders of the authority of the king who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's asking the question, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? And I, for one, want to answer, I'm stomping the works of darkness, and I'm praying that your kingdom will come, and your will will be done, and your name will be hallowed, and the enemy's plans will be thwarted and put to naught. And your name will be exalted and people's eyes will be opened. And they'll see, you see what I'm saying? We are shareholders with that authority. And he's, gonna, he's training us on how to take hold with him. But if we didn't go through hard times and we didn't have hard seasons to deal with, we'd just be like, Daddy, could you please send me $100? He's like, nope. but I'll give you a field to plow. And when you raise the crop, you'll be able to sell the grain and you'll have more than $100. Oh. Come on. He's a perfecting father. He's passionate about us being conformed to the image of his son. And our hardships are part of this process. Look, this is hard for us as Americans. We don't like anything inconvenient or hard. We think that that's a curse, and it's not. It's a blessing. I know people who have grown up with no discipline, never had to do anything hard, and they're basically cripples. To me, that's child abuse. They can't hold a relationship. They can't hold a job. They can't take care of themselves. That's child abuse. God is not a child abuser. He's raising up strong, consistent, Christ-like followers who are growing up into the fullness of the stature of his son. So verse 17 and 18 of 2 Corinthians 4, for momentary light affliction. Don't you like that? Dude was just stoned almost to death. Read his list of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
You, you don't want to put your resume up against Paul, really. You don't. For momentary light affliction, really, is producing for us an eternal, listen, is producing for us. The word affliction here, by the way, is the same word as tribulation that we read in Acts. Affliction, tribulation, same word. This affliction that we're walking through is actually producing for us something. It's producing for us something. Here's a cow. Don't stare at it. Milk it. Milk the cow. Every time that you're in a hard place, milk the cow because God's got some milk for you in this hard place. He really does. This light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Come on. This is such good news. While we look not at the things which are seen. This is what he's trying to wean us from. We look at everything that's seen. We look at everything that's felt. How, how many of you have had seasons, I know I have, in my Christian life where basically my, my walk with God was get in the prayer closet and take my temperature and see how I'm feeling? Oh, I just feel so down, God. I don't know why. I mean, he's like, why? That's because you're looking at yourself and you're taking your own temperature to see how you feel and you're asking yourself the wrong questions. Martin Lloyd-Jones said a great thing in his book called Spiritual Depression. He said the reason that we are depressed spiritually is because we are asking ourselves too much how we feel instead of telling ourselves the truth. Come on, sorry about the yelling. That's powerful. I had to preach to myself. How do you feel, honey? Are you okay? I'm like, no. I am a bond servant of Jesus Christ. He purchased me with his precious blood for destiny. And we're on the way to bringing his kingdom in greater fullness and the image of his son being established in me. What does it matter how I feel? <laughs> I know. I know it seems hard. It's not that our emotions don't matter and you don't stuff your emotions. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying we need to fix our eyes on the eternal reality, not on the things that are just like a puff of smoke that fluctuate with every single circumstance. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. That means they're constantly changing. But the things which are not seen are eternal. We focus our eyes on what's eternal and not on the seen. Even as believers, it's a process for us to wean ourselves from the temporal things. We're always surrounded by everything that we see and feel in our own life, and that's where our focus gets. And because of that, that's how we get depressed instead of turning our eyes to the Lord. I get it. Look, I've walked through that stuff too. I'm not really prone to it, but a couple years ago, a lot of you guys know I went through a bad patch in my life where I was really struggling with depression. I uh, never had it in my life before, but a whole series of circumstances happened that kind of threw me for a loop. 
And um, the Lord and my wife got me out. <laughs> That's real. When I'd be talking like that, guys, if you have a godly wife, you, you ought to thank God every day. When I'd be talking like that, feeling like that, she goes, no, baby, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to pray right now. And I'm like, yes, ma'am, that's what we're going to do. We're going to pray right now. You, that, that helped me to get past that and to see because it's blindness. There's, there's a blindness there. And so I'm thankful. All right, seven ways. You guys are going, seven? It's already after 12? Look, it's going to be quick. Hang, hang on. Seven ways that the pressure, affliction, anguish in our life produces eternal fruit for us, okay? I want to just go through this list, and I'm going to give you an example or two. Number one, how does the pressure and the affliction in our life produce eternal fruit? Number one, it, it deepens our faith. It puts our roots down deeper into God when we go through hard times. Just like a tree, if you plant a tree in a place where there's no wind, like they've done this before where they have inside coliseums and they've tried to plant trees and let them grow in there, when they get older, they can't even support their own weight because they're so weak. They haven't been pushed by the wind and their roots aren't strong and the wood in the trees isn't strong. They fall over. They can't survive that. We have to have um, adversity to be able to thrive. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, I'm going to read. We are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, there's the must. You have been distressed by various trials. It's necessary so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How many want, when you stand before the Lord at the end of your life, for there to be praise and glory and honor when you stand before Him on that day. The testing of your faith is an essential component to getting you there. It makes your roots go down deeper into Jesus. Number two, it reveals where our treasure is. That's so powerful. Life verse for me is Philippians chapter 3. Love that, have loved it for years and decades. Where Paul says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything else. What did Paul lose? He lost his whole career. He lost his reputation. He had people literally chasing him all around everywhere he went to try to kill him. That's pressure. That's worse than the mafia being after you. He had a contract out on him his whole life as a believer. That's a lot of pressure. 
I've lost everything. I count it as dung compared to the value of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count it as dung so that I can be found in him, having a righteousness not of my own derived from the law, but from faith in Christ Jesus. It reveals our treasure. I read a number of years ago a book called Secret Invasion that marked me. And in that book, there's Bible smugglers that were going in behind the Iron Curtain when Russia still controlled much of Eastern Europe. They were going in there to bring money and supplies and Bibles, and it was really dangerous. And they saw firsthand what was happening with the Christians there. And so one of the little vignettes, the stories in the book was they were going to meet a pastor in Bulgaria to give him money and to bring Bibles for him, for his people. And when they asked about where his house was, they went up to his house and they said, oh my gosh, it's like a little shack and the whole thing's just about falling in. Have you ever seen the old ones that are left out there and the roof is falling in and there's, you know, there's, there's rain that's coming inside? There was only a single room in that little house that was even livable. Everything else, the roof had fallen in. It was just a ramshackle house. And they went there and they started asking around to see, where is this guy? And another guy's like, I'll show you. And so they, they went over there, and they, they saw him, and he's in the little town square. And he's, he's sweeping the street with a push broom, but there's no handle on it. So he's got the little broom like this, and he's bending over, and he's sweeping the leaves in the street like that. And they go, that, that's, that's the dude? Like, this pastor was a leading engineer in Bulgaria. He was brilliant. He spoke fluently six languages. And he's sweeping in the street with that little broom with no handle. And so they went up to him, and they finally hooked up with him, and they sat down at a bench. And then I'm going to read you just his encounter real briefly. He says, the smile on his face seemed actually to glow as he greeted us warmly. We had expected to find a man marked by misery and bitterness. There was reason enough, the prison terms he had endured the loss of his pastorate, the humiliation and insult that a qualified engineer who could speak six languages fluently must feel at being forced to sweep the streets. And on top of all of this, the loss of the wife who could no longer endure the persecution, the long imprisonments, the horrible living conditions, the discrimination and psychological pressures, and the sense of shame. He lost everything. Yet sitting beside him on that bench... I was sure I had never looked into a happier face. He was radiant with the joy that Christ gives. And his one ambition was to tell his countrymen about Jesus Christ and let God's love be revealed through his life. Did you break the handle of your broom today or lose it? We asked him. No, that's part of the price I pay. Then he pointed upward suddenly and asked, Do you think he's coming soon? That perpetual smile broadened into a laugh. Clapping his hands together, he leaned back and looked up into the cloud-studded sky. He didn't speak. There was an ecstatic expression on his face that said it all. There was a faraway contemplative look in his eyes, and I wondered what he was seeing. He rose to go. We embraced one another fervently, 
And when he was out of sight, my friend and I looked at one another, and there were tears in our eyes. I was too choked to talk. I had drawn a picture of him in my mind as an unhappy, broken, miserable, and bitter man. Instead, I felt as though I had just met Jesus Christ. That's powerful. This is not a guilt trip at all. This is just perspective. This is perspective. Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 12, don't think it's a strange thing when you're enduring fiery trials. Verse 13 says, and to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, rejoice. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Oh, yes, Lord, we want your presence. I want your presence to rest upon me. He says, to the degree that you share in his sufferings, that's to the degree that the Spirit. Come on, revivalists. Number three. What eternal fruit does it produce in us when we walk with God through our trials? Our tribulation, it weans us from the love of this world, right? That's what Paul said. I count everything that I have as being dung, right? I get amused sometimes in worldly circles because I was raised in upper middle class, and we hobnobbed, my parents did, with, with some millionaires and, uh, the, and the way that they lived. And I, I found it humorous in one sense. Even as a kid, I could see it. Like, they're not happy. They're not happy at all. Um, their families are shambles. <clears throat> They're not satisfied. They don't like each other in their marriage. Um, they got lots of money and boats and houses and stuff, but, but they're, they're not happy. And they would talk about their stuff and about their houses and about their property and about the new boat and about there's just the material things because that's all they've got. And I'm thinking, that's what Paul's thinking in his mind. All of that stuff is like dung. And I, I'm trying to think of all the conversations that I've been involved with where people are describing, you see my pile of dung? Isn't that awesome? Look at the dung in there. Like that was corn from a few weeks ago. Look at that stuff that's in there. That's a beautiful pile of dung, isn't it? And Paul's going, that's just how stupid it is to glory in things that are going to pass away and burn. In comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, it's all like a pile of poop. And we're going to glory in that, for real. We're going to glory in that. Go, hey, you, you want to come over and see my pile of dung? It's really awesome. Like, I've been shining it and waxing it. It's amazing. You're like, well, I don't think so. Think about God's perspective. Our hard times wean us from the love of this world and the things in it. I had a conversation recently with a brother who's very uh, prosperous. The Lord's blessed him, and I totally believe it's God. His heart's hugely generous, and um, God's using him in a, in a beautiful way. And one of the things that he said to me just made me all warm and smile inside because I thought, that's, that's Jesus. 
He can trust you. He said to me, you know, it's interesting. I find myself more and more like not caring at all about material things. I'm like, that's God working in you. He's weaning you from the love of the things that you cannot keep. Right? He is no fool, Jim Elliott, who gives away what he cannot keep in order to gain what he can never lose. That sounds like wisdom to me. Oh, yeah, but if you had a huge pile of dung, you'd think differently. That's a win. It purifies our character, number four. We're making our way there. Thank you for your patience. Romans chapter 5, reading you verses that you're familiar with, but that's a good thing. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, I'm going to read this passage. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. There's that word again. Paul, how do we exult? You know what exult is? What's the the word exult mean? Huh? Huh? We glory. Listen, if you, go, if you go to a sports game, you know what exalt means. Yeah! Yeah! That's what exalt means. Paul goes, we exalt in our pressure, in our tribulations. Really? Are you mentally ill? Why? Because we know it's producing something eternal. We know that it brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. Beautiful. Number five, it gives us opportunity to show real, fervent love for one another. Like in the Gospels, the story where there's a man who's paralyzed, and the crowd is thronging Jesus in their house, and they're trying to get the paralyzed man to Jesus. So what do they do? They figure out a way. And we're going to get him in there if we have to go through the roof. Well, that's what we're going to have to do. Let's go through the roof. Start digging through the roof. Jesus is in the house talking. Dirt starts falling down. Everybody's like, what the heck? Tiles get pulled away. Here's this dude let down by a rope. And Jesus is like, for real? You guys did all of that for a friend to bring him in here? Take up your bed and walk. The faith of his friends who brought him there got him healed. Same thing happens, I believe, in prayer. A lot of times in a community, we can help to take each other to Jesus. That's real love. That's fervent love for one another. Number six, it reveals ourselves to us I'll read this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. I'm going to read this. You guys doing okay? If you got, can you give me just a couple more minutes? Uh, nobody said yes, so uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to just take that as an okay. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of our affliction, same word, which came to us in Asia. Listen, listen to this. That we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Now, Paul, why would you speak such words of unbelief as that? 
He's not. He's just telling the plain truth and being transparent. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. When we get into a hard spot, one of the things that helps us in that time so much, if we would take the time to think and to ask God to show us, like it reveals to us our own weakness. It reveals to us the areas of blindness in our life. We need that. How many have blindness in your life? Okay. There's a couple nods and there's a few hands. So if, if you have blindness in your life, then why don't you identify it and get rid of it? Because you don't see it. You're blind, right? What happens when we go through hard times is it reveals what's actually inside of us so that the Lord can go, see that? We're going to take care of that now. That's our next project. We're going to get rid of that junk out of you. We're going to get rid of it. That's beautiful. Come on. You want to be conformed to the image of Jesus? Are you like me that every time the Lord corrects me and changes things inside of me, I count that as a total win. I worship him. The times in my life where I've worshiped God more than any other, honestly, is when he just beat the snot out of me, but he loved me. And he said, you know what? I love you too much. I'm not going to share you with the world, and I'm not going to leave these things that are going to destroy your life undealt with in your life. They're coming to the surface, and we're going to deal with them, and I'm going to be your partner in this thing, and we're going to get rid of this. That's beautiful. That's my father. He's more concerned about my soul than he is about my comfort. Thank God. Thank God. Number seven. And lastly, and we're going to get ready to land here, it teaches us how to use Jesus' authority. I'm not going to elaborate on that, but you can look at Ephesians chapter 6. Um, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the devil. And, and we need, as we walk, listen, I'm not saying that we should lay down and let the devil do whatever he wants to in our life. No, we have to have discernment to know when to cast the devil out, when to rebuke the devil, and when to walk through something with God. We have to know the difference, and that takes experience, and it's not easy to explain one, two, three, and this is how you do it. But that's how we learn. We learn like the Lord rises up inside of us and goes, no, don't take that. That's the devil. Kick him out. Oh, you get out. That's not your thoughts. That's the devil putting those thoughts in your mind. Cast them down then. I do it all the time. You think I yell in the pulpit, you should see me in my prayer life. <laughs> I'm like, get out of my head. That's a lie. I do that. All right, three questions to ask yourself in the middle of the tribulation. How can I best honor God in this, in this moment? Question number one, that's always the right question. Number two, what is the eternal thing that God wants to give birth to in my life through this hard season? And then number three, what are the impurities that God wants to purge out of me in this hard season? If, if we'll go into our hard times with those questions, we will come out of them with some eternal treasure instead of wasting time. How many, how many of you can say with me that there's a lot of times where a hardship in your life, you've just been gritting your teeth and waiting for it to pass so you could move on, and you never reaped any eternal fruit from it? Like, that's a shame. There's the cow there. The Lord says, milk it, milk it, milk it, milk it. Like, no, I just want the cow to go away. He's like, milk the cow. 
There's eternal fruit in every hardship that God wants to bring to our lives. Romans 8, you know this. Paul lists this whole litany of things that are difficult. Romans 8, verse 35 to 39, and I'm, I'm done. Romans 8, 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Answer. What is the answer? Nothing, <clears throat> Nothing and no one. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing and no one. Will tribulation, same word, answer, no. Will distress, will persecution, will famine, will nakedness, will peril, will sword. No, just as it is written, for your sake all day we are being put to death. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Thank you for that encouraging word, Paul. Praise God. But, here's the but, in all, all these things, in all these things, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loves us. When we partner with Him, it ends up being a win because He brings eternal fruit out of the hardship. And listen, when the baby's born... You will forget about the anguish, and you'll just have a testimony. Oh, you know, that was really hard, but look at this baby. Let's have another one. And the Lord says, I've got one. All right. C.S. Lewis quote, God who foresaw your tribulation has specially armed you to go through it not without pain, but without stain. So good. So good. Yeah. Amen. So, I want you to bow your heads with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for your great grace. I do pray that you would shift mindsets and that you would teach us how to take advantage of every opportunity of hardship that you give us in our lives or that we come across, that you would Help us to reap the treasure from that, that our lives would be continuously changed, that you would be glorified and you would have your way. Would you teach us how to maximize the eternal good of every hardship and tribulation that we go through? Would you teach us how to stand strong, to be stable and steady and to not to give in and not to quit, to be persevering and to have endurance and steadfastness? God, make us a strong people that are strongly trusting in you. And our hearts are fixed and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Lord, I do pray for those that are going through really difficult things, and we don't minimize how difficult things can be. But I pray for your great grace to sweep over them. And I pray for insight to come from your spirit in them to help them to see as you see and to help them to see what cows they need to milk while they're in there. And I pray that you would give them encouragement and strengthening and that you would establish them and that you would give them great confidence even in the midst of their difficulty and of their hardship. Father, I love these people. Lord, I know you love them infinitely more than I do. I pray that you would 
strengthen and establish, that you would lift up and encourage, that you would help in our time of need. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.